Welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me. And I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Jessica Koblenz, a Catholic theologian and an assistant professor in the Department of Religious Studies and Theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. She is the author of the new book, Dust in the Blood, A Theology of Life with Depression. Before we talk to Jessica, I want to take a moment to talk about some things happening in the news with our second Catholic president, President Biden, and his intention to nominate a Black woman to the Supreme Court. What I'm noticing after the announcement was made is a great discomfort among people who hold conflicting ideas about competence in Black women. I mean, for so long, the unspoken measure for competence, especially for the Supreme Court of the United States, was being a white male. Our president publicly identifying a Black woman strikes at the heart of some people's idea of who can be a Supreme Court justice, hence all the problem with even the mention of a race and gender, the conflicts with their beliefs, beliefs set by social conditioning. I mean, they can't handle the paradigm shift that identifies power and competence as residing with a Black woman. I mean, I've seen people say everything would be okay. I mean, if he just didn't even mention that she was a Black woman. And I was like, what? Why this discomfort? He mentioned the nominee is qualified, but empty it of the part that is most distressing, Black femaleness. Look, Some people are saying, well, you know, if he brings this person forward, she's going to be in favor of abortion rights and so on and so forth. And I was really grappling with that. And I was like, you know what? Even if I don't agree with whatever her stance may be on Roe or Burgerfell or the HHS mandate, I believe that she, like the many white men before her, is qualified and competent to make legal opinions. It's the implication that she cannot be competent if she supports Roe seems like really more code for a Black woman cannot be competent. Why? Because I don't see the same sneering at the current justices who all said Roe was settled law when they were asked during the nomination processes. I don't see anyone claiming Justice Taney was incompetent for his ruling on Dred Scott. In other words, no one asserts Taney or those other white dudes were incompetent because their legal opinions were immoral. So why does her competence evaporate at the mere thought that she might rule unfavorably on certain matters? She can be wrong and competent, just like the other white guys on the Supreme Court were. But instead, whoever this unnamed Black woman is, is being demeaned and denied this laurel of competence on the flimsiest of standards that have never applied to white men on the Supreme Court. Also, the news has covered the story of Chesley Christ who died this week, and in looking closer at the details of her life, she seemed to fit into what Jessica Koblenz would call a high-functioning, depressed person. Because for all exterior purposes, she looked happy, she was successful, and yet her life ended tragically. And so I think it's really timely to talk about depression the theology of depression, not from a clinical or therapeutic sense, but how do we, as people of faith, process depression, life with depression? How do we accompany people suffering with depression? All from the lens of our faith and our relationship with God, and what does our faith say to us? And I also think this conversation is important 
because we take head on two very popular Christian notions of depression. One, that it's because of your sinfulness, or two, that it's some kind of divine instruction. And I talked with Jessica about why she believes that neither of those approaches is particularly satisfying or helpful. So stay with me as we get ready for this conversation with Jessica Koblenz. At America Media, we're committed to hosting real conversations at the intersection of the church and the world. I mean, we do it every day, online, in print, in podcasts, and videos. And you know what? We've just released a new documentary on our YouTube channel that tells the story of an historic Black Catholic parish in Cleveland, Ohio, that had to fight to stay open amidst parish closures and clustering. And it's a really powerful testament to perseverance and faithfulness in the Black Catholic community. And they push back on the closure of the parish, but not in a way to dismiss the authority of the bishop, but maybe to invite him into seeing why this parish needed to stay open. It's just a fascinating story, a fascinating glimpse into the lives of these very faithful people. And I really encourage you to watch it. And I put the link to the documentary in the show notes. So please do go and watch it. This is the kind of content that America is producing every day. And guess what? The best way to support it is by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thank you. Stick around. My conversation with Jessica Koblenz is up next. Jessica, welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast. I'm so happy to speak with you about a topic that, you know, might be difficult for many people listening. I think it's frequently misunderstood. Depression is. I think there's also some hokey foolishness that people could say about depression. And I've seen some really unfortunate interpretations of challenges with mental health vis-a-vis God or the devil. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping we could talk about that help us understand, well, how can we look at this from the perspective of our faith without falling into a lot of erroneous judgment or even the other side, assuming that this depression means you're extra special, blessed to suffer in this unique way. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I think it's really, really important that we can talk about mental health and life with depression. And I think sometimes people always want the clinical talk, the clinical talk, you know, to talk with the therapist and stuff like that, which is good. But I want to, from the outset, say that this is not what this conversation is going to be about. We're asking for your help in understanding how we, as people of faith, might think through the reality of depression. So how do you, as a Catholic theologian, see yourself being able to write even about the topic of depression, since it's not from a clinical, therapeutic kind of point of view, but as a theologian, you write about this. Yeah, like many forms of suffering, depression, I think, brings up a lot of deeply theological and Christian questions. You know, Mm. where is God? Why is this happening to me? How should I, as a Christian, relate to this really difficult experience that I'm undergoing. 
Similarly, when we are uh, witness to other people who are suffering in such difficult ways, often we ask, you know, why is my loved one depressed? God, how am I to accompany this person? These, to me, are questions that psychologists and social workers and all sorts of mental health care professionals can certainly help us grapple with. But I think there are distinctly Christian and theological responses to these questions, resources for grappling with these questions that I think are sometimes neglected in our faith communities. And so part of why I wanted to write on this topic was so that we would have more readily accessible Christian theological resources to supplement the great clinical resources that you mentioned. So I understand depression is a general human experience, but for the individual, each individual can have a uniquely different experience of depression, which to me is, how do you even treat it, you know, if that's the case, <laughs> or how do you even relate it to God's work in the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a remarkably elusive condition, depression is. For as many people who experience depression, when I started this research and really dove into accounts from depression sufferers of what this experience was like, Mm -hmm. I was really struck by how many people said, you know, I don't have the words to even describe what this experience is like. This is so different from how I typically experience the world that all I can say is that if you've experienced it, you know what it's like. In this sort of inability to articulate the experience, however, I did notice, and other scholars have as well, that there are certain images or kind of figurative descriptors that emerged over and over again among depression sufferers. For example, people often describe depression as a sort of dislocation to another Mm. world. They wake up and they find that things that they just took for granted in life, a sort of perception of the future, of change, possibilities of freedom, the ability to do things, things like that all of a sudden were not available to them. It was like they're living in a different world. Mm. And that was so striking to me that that was the kind of language that was occurring over and over as people talked about their experience. I think the most powerful visual I'd ever seen someone share with me to explain their, what they called falling into a depression, and it's never left my mind. Anytime I hear somebody talk about depression, I remember this visual someone shared with me, and it was literally a visual. And you're from the point of view of the person falling into this pit, and it's like you're falling into a pit and you're grabbing to try to get hold of something, but the weight and rapidness of which you fall into it You're just falling. And you could see the sun, but you're falling deeper in. I felt like I was complete, just an immediate disassociation with everything that you're familiar with Mm -hmm. and a desperation to get it back. At least that's what it evoked in me when I saw it. Mm -hmm. And so in your book, you do talk through the different kinds of ways, or even some people saying they're in a wilderness. and, And I think about what that's like to be in a wilderness, unequipped to survive in it. And that's heavy. And I'm wondering if that's sort of this unhome-likeness that you discuss in the book. Yeah, this term unhome-likeness I get from phenomenology. But one of the reasons why I was so drawn to this term as a description for what depression is like is because of the frequency of this kind of spatial 
language that you're describing, even with this image that you encountered, Gloria, that so often people say, you know, there's this radical shift in my experience. It was out of my control. So the kind of philosophical understanding of unhomelikeness, I think, resonates with what a lot of depression sufferers describe in the sort of spatial resonances of that particular term also maps onto this recurring imagery that depression sufferers often cite. Why is this talking about this unhomelikeness helpful as opposed to other descriptions for depression? I think a lot of times when we talk about depression in everyday conversation, we think about it as a form of sort of long and severe sadness, right? Depression is a form of sadness. And Many depression sufferers say, you know, sadness is part of it. You know, it's kind of like sadness. But over and over again, they also say, like, this is not just sadness. You know, there's Mm -hmm. sadness is a part of everyone's experience, right? And it's something, these kind of emotional fluctuations that we experience in everyday life are are, are quite normal. Your favorite sports team loses and you're sad. (laughs) Right. Or you experience a loss in your life and you're grieving and you're sad. Like these are very kind of commonplace, albeit difficult parts of our lives. Depression sufferers say the experience of depression is often far more encompassing than these kinds of everyday emotional fluctuations. And so as I started studying depression, it seemed important to honor sufferers' experience Mm. by not just settling for this language that they themselves said, no, it's not really sadness. I also think settling for sadness, understanding depression as sadness, can also lead to some sort of stigmatizing ideas about Mm. depression, right? Because if someone's really depressed and you say, oh, just cheer up. Everybody gets sad sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. Don't do that, people. Everyone listening, please never do that. Please (laughs) don't. Exactly, (laughs) Gloria. Yeah. So it can. I think it can be deceptive thinking about it as sadness. And I also think for people to talk that way, I think there's a fear sometimes of accompanying people that are experiencing this and our own unwillingness to have compassion, to suffer with, I think sometimes can make some of us say some things because we ourselves are ill-equipped to suffer with someone, to really walk through this unknown with them. Yes. And I I know in your book, you write about two popular Christian ideas about depression, one being the result of human sinfulness and the other as depression as a kind of divine instruction. God's teaching us something. Can you paint us a picture of these two schools of thought Mm -hmm. and maybe why we ought to approach them with caution? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first kind of common Christian message about depression that social scientists and others have observed in their study of the U.S. church is, as you said, that depression is a sin or the result of a sufferer's sinfulness. So sometimes this is communicated very directly from the pulpit. Other times, though— It's communicated in really subtle ways. So people will say things like, you're depressed. You really ought to be focusing on gratitude and joy if you're a faithful Christian, which Mm. implies that a person's depression is a result of like their unfaithfulness or something. Yeah, like they're choosing it by their outlook or whatever. Exactly. And that's a key part of this view is the assumption that people are kind of freely choosing this. And that's what leads people to think it's a sin, right? That it's their choice, that they're personally responsible for this and that they are choosing against God's will Mm. by being depressed. Yeah, the appeal of that is that 
some people take comfort in the idea that depression might be in their control, right? If you only repent, if you only try harder to be happy or to be grateful, then you will not feel this way anymore. The danger of that, of course, is that you know, a lot of depression sufferers, as I said earlier, do not experience any form of control over this experience. And so to suggest that they do, and then on top of that, to label them as sinful can be really, really hurtful and worse in the situation. Yeah, I'd say. Yeah. The other popular Christian message about depression is one that I have found is much more common in Catholic circles. Mm-hmm. And This sort of paints depression as a sort of sacred opportunity. People say things like, you know, God is giving you this depression for a reason. And your job is to kind of be faithful to God, endure it, and make the best of it. And again, I think this is said oftentimes as a message of hope, like, you know, hang on and God will bless you. People, I think, mean well by it. But Again, we can kind of see some problems that might arise for depression sufferers who hear that. For one, a lot of depression sufferers feel like there isn't anything good coming from their condition. You know, they often feel really miserable. And secondly, I think we have to think about the image of God that's kind of implied in that kind of message, right? This is implying a God who is afflicting people with really incredible suffering. And I don't think that is always a helpful and faithful portrayal of God. You know, I think there's so much, you know, thinking about how I've heard about suffering as a Catholic. And by the way, I'm not a cradle Catholic. I came into the faith at 12, so I didn't have anybody in the family to guide me. But to hear about a lot of, oh, offer it up, you know, from my Catholic friends telling me how their parents would talk to them when something was difficult. So I am trying to, right now, think about well, what does this mean for this kind of suffering? Because we do talk about suffering being able to be used for good, right? That God mm-hmm. can use these things for good. We don't say he necessarily inflicts the suffering on us because we're already in a fallen world. But what does this mean, though, in terms of depression as this kind of suffering, not having a redemptive purpose? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You talk about that's like, a, <laughs> what? <laughs> what? So... Walk us through. Yeah. I mean, I think you're making already some really important distinctions. I would want to affirm the fact that depression, like all aspects of our lives, can be sites of God's grace, right? A lot of depression sufferers say that they do find ways to make meaning of their suffering, to see God Mm. in new ways, or to grow from it. And that's actually really important to a lot of sufferers. But I would want to distinguish that sort of possibility of grace and growth that is on offer from God from this notion that God is afflicting people, right? Like you said, which I think often does accompany messages about redemptive suffering. I would love to see us be more careful about affirming possibilities of growth from a mandate to grow, right? So part of the sort of accompaniment and bearing with people who are really suffering that you mentioned earlier is, I think, bringing an open hand (laughs) to our accompaniment with those who are suffering so that we don't over-determine how they have to relate to this while still affirming the possibility that God might be at work in ways that are not yet apparent to the person who's suffering. Yeah, that's a lot of holding on without knowing. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of unknowing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. The difficulty of accompanying depression sufferers is very real. And I, I'm so glad you're emphasizing that. I, a couple things come to mind right away as I think about that, because I think this is something as people of faith, we can really work on <laughs> mm. how to accompany depression sufferers and anyone who's suffering while these questions about why this is happening or what's going to come from it remain unanswered. One passage comes to mind from Pope Francis's 2018 apostolic exhortation, Gaudete et Exaltate, on holiness. He has a section where he is kind of doing a modern meditation on the Beatitudes, and he reflects on this Beatitude, blessed are those who are mourning. And he talks about how in our world where we have so many distractions and we live such fast-paced and busy lives, we have lost the ability to actually face those who are suffering because there's always something to distract us Mm -hmm. instead of really bearing with the difficulty of the pain of our world. And he says, like, this is what it means to be holy today is to face and bear with those who have suffering that is not easily going away. That does not have an easy answer. That does not have a quick fix. And I think Francis is right. And I think that's validated by a lot of the stories of depression sufferers who talk about what kind of blessed accompaniment looked like in their lives. One person I think about is the Christian writer and educator Parker Palmer, who talks about his experiences of depression and how he had a friend who came and massaged his feet day after day. They didn't talk. Mm. He didn't get answers about why this was happening. His friend didn't kind of impose any conversation about that that wasn't invited. He was just present. He accompanied him. And Palmer talks about how that changed the way that he started to talk about depression with other people who sought his counsel as a kind of Christian leader and an educator. And he became much quicker to say, like, I I don't know why this is happening, (laughs) but Mm. I'll be with you and we will be with you even as we don't have those answers. And as you explain that, I I think about the feeling of that, a touch of another, Mm. because I've come to believe that physical touch and massage in particular can be ways of helping someone when they're dealing with stress. I think about that as I used to do baby massage with my child and I still... 11 years later, <laughs> every night, go in there as she's going to bed. I don't know if this is a bad habit, but <laughs> try to massage her because I imagine even though she's 11, even though she's 10, even though she's nine, she's eight, she has her stresses in the world. Yeah. You know? And yeah. mommy's going to be there, even if I don't know what they are, just to offer that calming hand. And I imagine, wonder what that's like in depression. The isolation that so many depression sufferers feel. I, I can imagine that there might be something about the physical touch or the physical presence of another that not necessarily breaks through that isolation, but is a consolation amid the isolation that people are experiencing within themselves. I'm thinking of Monica Coleman, who's a theologian and and somebody who's written a really powerful depression memoir, Bipolar Faith, talked about like she couldn't sleep and she'd had friends who would just come over, sit on her couch until she fell asleep. You know, just the comfort of having the presence of somebody who cares about you there made a difference. We'll be right back. Now, I know in trying to help people talk or think of depression, you make the suggestion that we think of depression as a wilderness experience. 
And you use the biblical story of Hagar, the Egyptian woman enslaved in the clan of Abraham, who is used as the surrogate for Sarah and bears the child Ishmael, right? But then after Sarah bears her son Isaac, she tells Abraham to drive Hagar and Ishmael into the wilderness. Help us walk through Hagar as the someone that we can look to for that wilderness experience that might help us understand depression. Yeah, I was really captivated by Hagar's wilderness experience because it stood out as one where she, like many depression sufferers, experiences this kind of unwilled dislocation into a difficult place, right? The wildernesses of the scriptures are, by definition, really, really difficult places for people to live. And I was struck by how the story really pushes back on a lot of the common justifications that Christians assign to suffering. So often people, as I mentioned earlier, will say, oh, well, a person is suffering because they did something wrong. Well, Hagar doesn't do anything wrong. She's very clearly an innocent victim in the story. Likewise, even though she's terribly mistreated by Sarah and Abraham, there's no explanation in the text for why God allows this kind of malice and evil among human beings that affects her so terribly. And there's no claim about some profound holy insight that she gains from this suffering, no reason why God lets her remain for the rest of her life in the wilderness and doesn't kind of rescue her in some way. There's just an absence of these kind of quick fix justifications that we so often resort to, in which frankly appear in a lot of other wilderness stories of the scriptures in some form. And so it occurred to me that sitting with Hagar's story as a community of faith might offer us a way of thinking about suffering, in this case, depression, that exists, that God is present to, because God does appear and accompany and interact with Hagar in the wilderness. Yet, it's a type of divine accompaniment that isn't one that gives us easy answers for why this happens. And I think we would be more equipped to accompany depression sufferers if we sat with these kind of biblical stories more often, stories of God's work in the world, God's presence that don't offer us easy explanations. So when you talk about Hagar and being forced out into the wilderness in a hostile environment even, I can't help but think about the people of the Middle Passage, Mm. the transatlantic slave trade that was stolen from their homes, put in these ships, horrible Middle Passage, many died. But then for those who survived, what they survived into, this real unhome-likeness of this new continent, this way of life of these people over you, and I also wonder what their relationship with God was like experiencing this and surviving this into this really a living hell we call slavery. So I'm thinking, you know, you, you write about depression being a kind of double dislocation from one's sense of self and from one's religion. And so I'm thinking of these people and communities of color that maybe experience depression. Is there perhaps a third dislocation for communities of color when depression happens? Yeah, well, there's a growing body of research on how both ancestral suffering, but also like the current realities of racism in our world contribute to and often compound experiences of depression. 
among African Americans and other people of color here in the United States. I'd be remiss not to mention that even my reading of Hagar is deeply informed by the work of Dolores Williams, who's a womanist theologian who wrote this fabulous book, Sisters in the Wilderness, that focuses on Hagar. And one of the reasons she focuses on Hagar is because of the role that Hagar has often had in African-American spirituality. And I think long before mental health struggles were as widely discussed as they are now, she and many other womanist thinkers, a type of Black feminist thinker, were pointing to the fact that this kind of psychological distress is something that Black women were experiencing and also that affected their relationship to God and challenged some of the ways that we thought about God. Yeah, I'm thinking about the coping mechanisms for that. I'm thinking about the spirituals, Negro spirituals, the blues, all of these ways in which people process depression, frankly, Mm -hmm. and still trying to survive. And I think one of the things you do talk about is that there are people who are high functioning also that have depression. Mm -hmm. And so it looks like everything's good. I mean, what do you mean? Blah, 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 blah. Right. You're doing this. You're a lawyer. You've got your MBA. You've got all these things. What do you mean you're depressed? You've got it all. Mm -hmm. Help us with that. How can that be? Yeah, some mental health activists talk about this as smiling depression, which I find Mm. to be a really striking description of it. Part of how this can be is the fact that we live in a society that doesn't stop for people who are suffering. So many mothers who experience postpartum depression, right? The baby doesn't stop crying even when you're depressed. Your other responsibilities in the home don't stop even when you're depressed. And so I think a lot of people feel like they have no choice but to try and push through and put a happy face on in order to just survive the moment. I think we could benefit a lot as a society and as a church if we acknowledged that and tried to create other opportunities for people who are suffering so that they didn't have to just push through it all the time so that they could more readily seek help and support, not only kind of mental health care, which is so important, but even just you know, how amazing would it be if the mother who's struggling with postpartum depression knew that she could reach out to people in her parish and say, I'm suffering. I need some help. I can't just continue to push through. Yeah. We can do that as a church, but I think it just takes a concerted effort. And then this response, though, to that cry for help, understanding that, especially since you just gave the examples of people who had friends accompany them, I didn't hear you say prayer, Hmm. that they accompanied them and sat with them and prayed through the night or prayed through it, but they gave a different kind of assistance. And I'm wondering if that might be hard for some of us who are listening, who are believers, to not hear you say that, you know, sitting and praying with them is the way to accompany. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought this up, Gloria. Part of me thinks, you know, maybe like I just take for granted certain spiritual practices like praying for people who are suffering. But I think one of the really important things when we support depression sufferers is to be attentive to the help that they are asking for. I'm sure that if somebody's suffering and you offer them, can I pray with you? Some people would absolutely love that and feel very comforted by that. But that also may not be the most helpful thing for a person at that time. And I think making ourselves sort of radically available to help people 
in all the ways that they need it, whether it is prayer, giving them a ride to mass, or whether it is doing the dishes or helping them find a counselor or helping them with childcare. I think these kind of are also spiritual acts Mm -hmm. and spiritual practices in addition to prayer and things like that. You know, it's interesting. I am in thinking about the corporal work of mercy, comfort the sick. It's very general, ain't it? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort the sick. And of course, that's what's coming to mind here as we talk about this, comfort the sick. And I think being present and open to love will lead us into being able to comfort the sick in whatever way they need comforting. Mm -hmm. So whether that's prayer, whether that's massaging their feet, whether that's just sitting with them until they fall asleep, maybe it's cleaning the bathroom, whatever, Mm -hmm. but you're just present enough to be able to comfort them in the way that they need to be comforted. Is there one last thing you'd want our listeners to take away from this discussion on theology and depression? I think one of the things that our conversation has brought out that I'm really grateful for is that sometimes what people need the most is love, love and accompaniment. I think sometimes these issues can feel so intimidating and uncomfortable and overwhelming because there's, you know, so much technical literature out there on these mental health struggles. It can be overwhelming. Educating oneself about all of this is important and good. But you don't have to be an expert in depression to love people who are suffering, to go the extra mile to accompany them. We are equipped to do that. And I think we as Christians are called to do that. Thank you so much. I'm hoping many people find this conversation as illuminating as I have found it. It's given me a lot to think about and meditate on and also consider how I can be more present to people who may be suffering in my life and I don't know it, and how I can be more present in general to other people. So thank you for that. Thank you so much, Gloria. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. And if you don't mind, could you please leave us a review? I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and Maggie Van Dorn. It's engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time.